right now, Bet365 offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football for the next few weeks, with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a hand break off. I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbreak Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Our guest this morning, the writers for The Athletic, actually they're all writers for The Athletic <laughs> this morning, it's Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas and Michael Cox. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Uh, we did see what happens. We put Lee Dixon in the WhatsApp group and we can't get him. As soon as that happens. Um, anyway, before we start, uh, I don't know how much we're going to dwell on uh, on last night's, um, I was going to say performance, but it might not be the right word for it. But before we do that, there was a plane, apparently, that was flying overhead. I just saw a brief uh, allusion to this uh, that was flying over the um, the ground last night saying, uh, back Arteta, Kronke out. Um, so we were wondering... What would be your favourite message uh, on a plane flying overhead? Uh, Michael, let's start with you. Uh, favourite message? I mean, the, the thing about this was I was watching the game and I, I did for a split second wonder whether this was like a fake sound effect, you know, as if like uh, with a fake crowd noise, they'd gone, <laughs> well, planes have become such a thing flying over football stadiums recently. Um, I I think I'd like some kind of in-game stats uh, just flown over the, you know, the kind of thing we get on the television coverage. If you're in the ground, which of course no one is at the moment, but you don't get those kind of stats. So, yeah, I'd like a plane just going past after an hour and saying, you know, Arsenal haven't had a shot on target yet or something like that. I think that'd be really useful. <laughs> 73% possession, <laughs> something like that, just trailing behind a biplane. James, what about you? Um, I don't. I think I would have something like I'm off, and then when the camera zoomed in, Meza Ozil's flying himself out, uh, on the plane, just because in the wake of Arsenal's absence of creativity last night, the Ozil debate has reared its head again, and I'm so exhausted by it that I can barely think about it so I just would love that to be over so that would be mine I think I think the plane's more likely to be I'm not going anywhere though <laughs> yeah I'm sure yeah. I'm sure I mean if you put his salary on there wouldn't really be a long enough banner at the back would it let's be fair uh Amy what about you for a message oh, I, sus- I suspect plane? that you maybe can predict where this is all going uh but mine would just say end sweet Caroline <laughs> I should say, listener, if you haven't been listening, this has been Amy's... I mean, I mean, it only came up last week, but I know that Amy's been thinking about this for a while, that she's not very happy uh, with Sweet Caroline. So I've been texting her quite a few times this week with, oh, 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 just for a bit of fun. Doesn't seem to have gotten yeah, the you, last... you wonder why I'm not responding. I, I, no, no, I know exactly why, but it just gives me pleasure, you know? Uh, yeah, OK, and Sweet You've Caroline. Addictive old so-and-so. <laughs> we are. Do, do we know... Do we know, by the way, if Aston Villa have any association with mm. that song, or was their I... decision to play it at full time just a, a clear taunt at Arsenal? At Amy, in fact. At Amy at Lawrence. Amy. I spoke. I spoke to Christian Perslow, and I said, "If you could wind her up, this would be hilarious." And he went, "Listen, I don't really know you, but you know what? We'll have a laugh." So uh, I hope you enjoyed that little joke. Um, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not finished on this campaign though. I'm. I, you know, I genuinely might do a crowdfunder for for that plane, but. Um... <laughs> we are we are actually going to talk about Arsenal and why they get their music so wrong uh, briefly. Um, I, a little message uh, at the back of the plane. Well, the thing is, what we're going to talk about today, um, 
Michael is on and he wrote a very good piece, which I want to chat about, uh, about Arsenal playing out from the back. Uh, I thought get rid of it might be quite fun uh, once in a while coming out the back of a plane. I know people don't really <laughs> say that anymore. Uh, I, I just I always wondered when I watch kids football and all the parents shouted, get rid of it. And I think, has anyone ever said this in Spanish? You know, has anyone ever, <laughs> ever once said get rid of it, just hoof it upfield? Uh, so get rid of it uh, for me. Um, I actually quite enjoy watching Arsenal playing out for the back. Michael, I want to talk about your piece uh, where you talked about Arsenal uh, playing out from the back. And you and it's funny because the first thing when we when we said it came up with this idea of talking about this, the first thing I thought about was the thing that you wrote about, which is the game at the start of last season, which I don't know if people can remember. It feels like a thousand years ago. I believe it was last season when uh, Unai Emery turned up and the first game back, we were, were we playing Manchester City, Michael? We were, yeah, yeah, yeah. First yeah. game of the season. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Peter Cech almost passed it into his own goal. And um, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, general sort of laughter from everyone, but also going, what are we doing? Um, but when you've seen the last few games, particularly the one against Man City, when we had an 18-pass move that started with our goalkeeper and, and, and included 10 of the 11 players uh, in the team leading up to Aubameyang's goal, we're getting better at it, aren't we? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one obvious upgrade is is Martinez rather than Czech in that sense. Um, Czech, I, I think, was almost the last of... One of the last of the old-school keepers who wasn't particularly comfortable with the ball at his feet. Um, and, I mean, that... The, the pass you mentioned against Man City, it might be the worst kick of ball I've ever seen on a football pitch. I mean, he manages to almost send the ball directly backwards into his own net from about six yards out. It was remarkable. Um, and yeah, you know, I use that as a kind of comparison point and, and pointed out that maybe the fact that there's no fans in at the moment is actually helpful in some situations. I think certainly when you're in that nervous moment on the edge of your box, if there's no, you know opposition fans going ooh, and there's no Arsenal fans shouting go on just get rid of it maybe you are more inclined to, to play out from the back and Arteta afterwards in, in an interview was quite uh, insistent about how you know he wants Arsenal to play that way I think he was asked you know do you get nervous in those situations and he said no I get nervous when we just hit it long um, and in fairness Arsenal did hit it long on occasion they did just uh, you know David Luiz played a, a few fairly aimless balls forward from the back but yeah, as we saw for, for the first goal and indeed the second goal in a, a different way, working the ball out from uh, defending a corner. Obviously, that patience can uh, can really pay off. I mean, Amy, when we do do this playing out from the back, uh, and, I, and I think, Michael, you talked about it in the piece, um, the crowd plays a big part in all this. We have to be calmer. Do you think that, that I mean, there's so many things that we could use the crowd for, but in this particular case, getting used to playing out from the back, do you think it's actually helping that there's no one there? I think it's all about the players. I hate to say I don't think the crowd influences whether the um, the, the, the players play it out from the back or are, are a bit more direct. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there are times when a crowd is is gives that energy and you can see there's something in the adrenaline of players where they're just a bit more pumped. But I think in terms of that sort of style of football, it's really down to the players having that confidence in themselves to ex execute the kind of football that Arteta wants them to play. Now, whether Arsenal can evolve into a team that plays that all the time and whether indeed it, it should is a, an interesting question because, you know, usually it's nice to have a combination. It's nice to have a, a different kinds of options. So you try that, but if that's not working, that you can go a bit more direct, go a bit longer, uh, maybe mix it up a bit. But obviously for the specific... Um, situation of that Man City semi-final and Arteta was probably going to know what to do in that situation better than most given how long he spent with those players and, and that management team. He, he designed something that, that the team executed to perfection. I mean this is true and I, 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 I think I dispute a little bit about the crowd but I understand the point you're making but this whole thing with, with playing out from the back, I mean the, the the thing they could have done, of course, as they did a couple of times, as Michael said, was hoof the ball long. But that is just giving it back to the opposition, is it not? If you're playing against a team who have a high press, James, surely mm. you have to play it out from the back because that's how you keep the ball. And it's high-risk, high-reward football. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think that can be an anxiety-inducing thing for a crowd, especially 
one who aren't used to seeing that style of play. But Arsenal, it's the best approach for them, not only just because it enables them to sort of evade the press and retain possession, but also because they don't really have a centre-forward in that kind of Olivier Giroud mould who you can look to long and look to play off. Um, You know, Lacazette does a little bit of that, but not in anything like the same fashion. So... I think it made perfect sense against Man City and I think it worked brilliantly. I think what you saw though maybe in the Aston Villa game is that some of these players are better at it than others, you know, and I think say someone like Akiran Tierney was playing in the back three against City and we saw how good he was, uh, particularly on the second goal in terms of playing the ball with his feet. I think someone like Kalasinac who came in at Villa as part of that big raft of changes isn't quite at the same level. So, if you want to play like that, you need the players who have the confidence and the technique to do it as well. Quite. And Mikel Arteta has been in the job, uh, whatever, six months or something. It's going to take uh, a little bit longer uh, than uh, than he's had so far. Um, what was the difference then, Amy? You watched the Aston Villa game last night. What was the difference between what they were doing? Because I, interestingly enough, I watched the first the first two minutes of the Aston Villa game. I thought, oh, they've come out quite well. They were pinging the ball about, and it all looked good. So, what was the difference between the games? Uh, I mean, tactically, I think Michael can take care of that. But I mean, just from the general point of view, uh, one was FA. <laughs> Cup semi final and one was a team with a lot of changes, probably quite a lot of fatigue, uh, a bit of a come down and a flat, you know, a reversion to some bad habits. Um, I think some of the players that were missing made a difference. Uh, Torreira didn't look quite ready uh, to come in um, and play with the intensity to sort of take control. Uh, the Eddie and Katia experiment on the right hand side didn't look particularly um, effective. So there were a few. Uh, a, a few sort of, t- you know, technical massive changes to the team. I mean, not yeah. having Jack and not having Tierney in the starting lineup, etc., were you know were factors. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, I, I wasn't. I don't think anybody was that surprised. You know, the, the season's virtually over. The cup final had been secured, which was a massive high. I think the players were really sort of super hyped and buzzing after that you know i think in the dressing room there there was a real celebration and togetherness and sense of having achieved something in terms of that performance uh and where it what the potential of winning something for the you know on the back of what's been such a tricky season and to be on that high and then a couple of days later you got to go to aston villa and in the league let's be honest kind of even though there's been opportunities to wriggle out of that sort of uh, mid-table just below the Europa spaces, uh, you know, which always needed a serious run to get out of. Arsenal haven't had the consistency to do that. And I really wasn't that surprised that it was just all round a little bit flat. Yeah, well, that's 90 minutes of our lives. We're never getting back, isn't it? Let's be fair. Um, I mean, we've got some questions uh, from our listeners and we appreciate it. Amy put out a little shout out uh, on um, on social media. Um, Michael, I'll ask you this because it's from Zerkel. Zerkel, who said, do you think this Arsenal team deserve 10th spot and would missing Europe start a circle of mid-table mediocrity? Blimey. This actually got more grim as I started reading this tweet. Uh, what do you think about that? I, I think he actually says, I really think we need to straighten the course this summer or it will be brutal. I mean, the one thing I'd say is that I, this is maybe a slightly old school way of looking at things, but it's the lowest finish since, uh, what, since 94, 95. Um, but in both those seasons, Arsenal have got to a cup final, it being the European Cup Winners' Cup final in 95 and the FA Cup final this time around. And like I say, maybe this is an old fashioned view, but personally, I think you've had a better season if you finish 10th and you get to a cup final, hopefully win it, rather than if you finish 7th or 8th and, and don't get to a cup final. So, look, uh, Arsenal have, have clearly not had a, a very good season by their standards. Um, uh, but yeah, obviously that, that game against Chelsea really, I think, could could end the season on, on probably a higher note than than the side deserves. But uh, that's the nature of a cup competition. Uh, quite. I mean, sorry, just to go back briefly to what Amy was talking about, this, this tactical difference between uh, Manchester City, uh, the Man City game and the Aston Villa game. Is it 
Is it as simple as the Arsenal are just better? Does it work better for them when teams come on at them a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's there's certainly a case for that. I mean, I think in the, in this particular game, I think there was probably a psychological thing where the players were so drained from, in particular, the FA Cup semi-final uh, victory. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's a very good point. And I think when you look at the way Liverpool have progressed... They were in a similar situation two or three years ago. We were saying, well, they're good at beating big sides, but they can't break down Burnley at home. Um, Solskjaer's Manchester United a year ago were in the exact same situation as that. Um, probably have only got over that since the restart in terms of they were really good at beating Man City and uh, Chelsea and Liverpool, but but struggled to, to, to win games against bottom half sides. And I think to a certain extent, we've seen it with Lampard's Chelsea as well, though that might just be a kind of inconsistency thing. So yeah, I think what we're seeing these days is actually it's it's quite tough and you need a lot of time on the coaching ground to, to work on the passing moves that are going to break down deep defences. It's maybe easier for players like Aubameyang and, and Lacazette and Saka and, and Pepe, really quick players, just to naturally play on the break. So yeah, I think what we're seeing from Arsenal is probably the same... Uh, evolution curve, if you like, as we've seen for other sides who've been in a similar situation over the last five years. So, James, is it just a case of us getting so that teams think they can beat us? <laughs> uh, that might help. That might help. I mean, I, I agree entirely with that point. I do think that Arsenal, in some ways, it suits them, you know, to be the team without the creative burden in the game. Um, if you look at the Villa match and if you look at the Spurs match, for example, where Arsenal massively dominated possession but didn't ultimately do a, a huge amount with it, um, I think there is you know, a, a clearly a line that connects those two performances, where it's against Liverpool and against City, they were able to sit in deep. And I think it sort of plays to some of their strengths. You know, if you look at their centre-halves, they're best in a, a deep, compact unit. They don't want to be sort of chasing in behind or chasing into channels. As Michael mentioned, the forwards Arsenal have, Aubameyang and Pepe, probably two of the best counter-attacking forwards in the Premier League in terms of their attributes. So... I do think that you know that sort of setup does weirdly help Arsenal. The problem is there are only so many occasions, so many teams in the Premier League you can play like that against. Uh, and Arsene Wenger sort of had the inverse problem where his teams would steamroll the bottom 16 sides in the Premier League and then lose every single big game. But more often than not, that was good enough to get you into the top four. Um, and Arsenal kind of have the inverse problem now where they need to be better at beating the teams who sit off them. And, you know, Arteta spoke last night about it. He said it needs time uh, and it needs time on the training ground. And I think he's alluding to what Michael's saying, that sometimes it's quicker to kind of drill a defence into a sort of defensive action than it is to establish the patterns of play that might be required to, to break down a low block. Michael, I was just wondering what your feeling was on the kind of Ozil situation um, from the point of view of the overall tactics of uh, of Arsenal. I'm I just going to go funny. to the loo while this happens. <laughs> <is that right? laughs> yeah. But when you mentioned that comparison to the 94-95 season, uh, I think that that's probably the last time that I can remember that Arsenal really didn't have... Um, a kind of main creative hub of class and quality because obviously it was it was the season after that Dennis Bergkamp was signed who really took control of that of that creativity uh, from the get-go and then after an amazing number of years with Dennis uh, that baton was passed on um had sort of uh, Fabregas then sort of Wilshire and uh, a little bit of Nasri uh, um and then in came Mesut and at the early days of Mesut, it, it, it was it, it was doing what it was supposed to do, more or less. Um, but because of this impasse, because of the situation where he's sort of there but not there, obviously it's a it's an ongoing problem. James is right, going to the loo is probably the best way of dealing with this conversation. However, you know, looking forward, what do Arsenal do in terms of addressing that creative problem? If Ozil is not the answer, can they or should they be looking at someone else? to be doing that role, you know, and can that still fit in with what Arteta's trying to do? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, it's the biggest issue for Arsenal at the moment, isn't it? And it feels extraordinary that we're saying this about Arsenal, that they're lacking a player in that mould, because, I mean, you've, you've run through the list of, you know, real top-class players in that mould, but even 
if those players were unavailable or, or whatever, there was always someone, whether it was Kozola or Rizitsky yeah. or Chleb or Nazri or Arshavin, you know, these kind of creative players have been what Arsenal have been all about for the last 20, 25 years. And it, it seems bizarre that Arsenal find themselves without one. The, the player that I'm still sad left the club, and I know he, he wasn't maybe the most consistent or at times always the most popular with all Arsenal fans, but I thought Alex Iwobi actually did a really important job for Arsenal at times just because he connected the play he wasn't a chance creator like like Ozil clearly is but I mean you know the game against Villa I think it was very obvious that it was literally they didn't have anyone on the ball creating chances but at other times I just think it's been just someone in the right kind of areas you know there's there's uh, a set of midfielders and a set of forwards and basically no one in just in those in-between roles to link the play and the only one really doing that is is Lacazette, who I think has played a lot deeper yeah. than um, than he has under Emery in particular. Um, almost kind of trying to replicate the the Liverpool model, and I guess Liverpool have shown that you can create chances and be a really good side without that dominant creative player. But I just think it, it you know it feels strange for us to be talking about Arsenal lacking someone in that role. Um, and I I, I, I mean. Yeah, I don't want to go into to toilet-inducing conversations for James, but I, I do think the Ozil, the Ozil situation does need to be clarified. It is, I find, an extraordinary situation where we don't really know what the status of, of him is. He is the most experienced player there, a World Cup winner, the most renowned player, the highest-paid player, and is not in the squad. I, I think it's an extraordinary situation. And when Arsenal do lose the games in the way they do at Villa, um, I'm not sure how you can not say that's the main issue in terms of the playing side of the club. Can I ask a general question here? How did we get to this point? How has a team like Arsenal, with the investment they've got and the, the, the you know, the status they've got, got to the point where they have a have an unbelievable forward line that, that has no shots on target against Aston Villa last night? James, can I ask you that? I think uh, my answer is bad decisions. I mean, if you look as back to January 18, Arsenal had Alexis Sanchez and Meza Ozil playing behind their centre forward, and that was kind of the creative hub of the side. Um, since then, obviously they they put Ozil on a big extended deal that hasn't panned out. When Alexis went, they replaced him with two players really: Aubameyang, great, he's a brilliant goal scorer, but filling the kind of creative burden was Henrik Mkhitaryan. That was a fairly disastrous signing, I think you'd have to say. Um, other players have left. Iwobi. You know, of course, has been mentioned, but he's not the only one. Aaron Ramsey, Jack Wilshere in that period has gone. Uh, and they have not really been replaced, like for like. I mean, I think with the exception of Pepe, potentially, I don't think Arsenal have made enough creative signings. I mean, they've, they've brought in Denis Suarez as one of their creative players. And we all know what happened there. So I do think there is a, a recruitment issue here. I don't think the talent profile has been right. Um, and that's left a massive shortfall. And it is strange because the characterisation of Arsenal is as a team full of creative players who have a sort of missing a spine, who can't defend. But actually, you know, if you think back to the squads of 2008 or so that were packed with Rizitsky, Chleb, Fabregas, Arsenal have Nasri. Arsenal really have very, very, very few players in that mould at this point and it's something that the technical director desperately needs to address well we've got a question uh, actually from lm it's luke 50885 this could be a russian bot <laughs> it's very possible at the moment isn't it uh, but it's he's asking a perfectly fine question is jack Grealish the man to sort out arsenal creativity problems uh amy i mean we watched him last night he carried the ball forward further than pretty much any arsenal player most of the evening yeah, I think he had a really good game last night. I, d I don't know. I imagine there'd be a fairly substantial um, uh, English player premium for someone like Jack Grealish. And I think the situation that Arsenal are in, in terms of uh, the amount of players that I suspect ideally um, Arteta would like to see some change over the amount of positions, key positions that could do with some um, some boosting. I don't know whether they're, whether they're in the market to play pay extra English premiums for players. So I, I would suspect they might be looking overseas. What do you think, Michael, as someone who's, who's seen a, a fair bit of him this season? Yeah, I think Grealish has been great. I think he's, to be fair, he had a, a bit of a slow start to the season. I think 
aside from this game after um, the restart, he's been a little bit sluggish. But for the middle part of the campaign, I mean, Aston Villa at times have really just looked lacking in almost every area. But I think he's almost single-handedly kept them up. So, yeah, I mean, people were talking about him going to Manchester United, which you can't see now with Fernandes and Pogba playing well. Um, so you do wonder which team will come in for him. I wouldn't be surprised if Arsenal made a move. Yeah, I mean, on the subject of English players, uh, Dan Shaw has asked the question, would John Stones improve our defence or are we being lynched into buying a substandard version of Rob Holding, uh, who only cost us £2.5 <laughs> million? Pound? A couple of years ago, uh, James, uh, I, I mean, John Stones looked like the real deal, but it sort of feels like he's gone backwards a little bit at Manchester City. Yeah, it does, and it looks like he's on the way out at Manchester City, you'd have to say. They're looking at bringing in potentially two centre-halves from what we understand, uh, Nathan Ake likely to be the first. And Arteta is on record as really liking John Stones. I mean, he was asked about him in a, an Arsenal press conference not too long ago uh, and was you know, pretty thorough in his praise of him. I have to say, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily be my first pick, but I suppose if you're intent on playing out from the back, he is a player who has the technique and seemingly the confidence to take those risks, um, even if the ones that stick in my mind are probably the instance where it goes wrong for him. But, uh, you know, clearly there is a talent there. And if Arteta... Basically, I really value Arteta's appreciation of talent. Generally, I think he makes pretty good, sound decisions. Uh, and given how much he knows about the player, if he said he's the guy I want... I think to a certain extent I would kind of be prepared to go with that. Um, but yeah, John Stones is certainly not, he's not at the high point of his career right now. On that point, uh, James, because I know you wrote a piece with Sam Lee uh, for The Athletic uh, about Pep Guardiola. Um, I have not much respect for Arsenal off the pitch. Uh, this is his anger explained. I think we should all have that once in a while. <laughs> We're inarticulately ranting. Now, what yeah, he I have means to pay by someone that is, a lot for that. Yeah. So that yeah. <laughs> but... But uh, you talk about Pep Guardiola. I mean, it's possible that they wouldn't sell to us after what's been going on. Yeah, I don't know. It's a strange one, the Manchester City relationship between Arsenal, because there are so many reasons it should be good. You know, the links at coach level, there are links from Barcelona at executive level. There's a history of business between the clubs. Um, but clearly, you know, City have got a real bee in their bonnet about this European football business. And you can, to a certain extent, understand that. But you can also appreciate Arsenal's position, especially... Given that, as far as they understand, they are, you know comply with the rules absolutely entirely. Um, I think they st would still sell to us. It's business at the end of the day. If they want to move stones on, and there's a buyer, I think they'll do it. And if anything, if they do sell him to us, uh, maybe we should be sort of arching our eyebrow and wondering why a rival is letting a player join us. You know, what does it say about that player? A well, a rival. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit strong. You're absolutely right. Can we talk a bit more about that semi-final? <laughs> Just for a bit of feel good, you know, you've got to take what you can these days. Amy, why don't you start then? One thing that really was interesting to me um, when I was watching the game is that in the second half, I found myself uh, reacquainted with that feeling of like stomach churning tension in your stomach because you're kind of so desperate for something to happen, but you fear that it's all going to fall apart because, it, you know, it really matters and you really care about this. And it sort of suddenly I thought, God, I've not felt like this for a no. while. Um, and I think that was symbolic of something really good and really important. Arsenal need to be in games and in situations where there are things on the line that really matter and that you care about deeply, um, even if you feel slightly uh, unwell <laughs> during the course of the game because uh, it's so stressful. But it's good stress uh, and it's a sign that the team, I think, is... Back, back capable of being involved in high-level games with high stakes uh, and having a chance. And, and winning them. I think they, and... you know, they didn't just have a chance, they they delivered. Uh, and it felt like every... When I think about the Emery teams, which was obviously not that long ago, I remember feeling that every single player, with the possible exception of Aubameyang, who I think his consistency, kind of whatever been has been going on at the club, has been remarkable was playing worse than what they're capable of. And that was probably why it felt like it had to stop because that evidence was so uh, compelling. And it felt against Man City like every single player 
was playing above themselves. Again, probably with Aubameyang, you'd say that's you know that's his level. He he does that anyway. But across the team, there were there were performances from individuals that were you know. Can I really Amy, top? Amy, can mm. I just jump in? Who was that curly-haired chap in the centre of defence who played for us that day? Because he was quite good, wasn't he? No, it was a, a stunning performance from yeah. David Luiz. Really was, and you know, there, this is a guy who who tends to attract a variety of opinions uh, on his performances. You know, he's an emotional guy. He's an emotional player. Um, sometimes it goes well. Sometimes it really doesn't go so well. And you know, I think I think for for many of those, and I'd probably include myself in this, who had a lot of frustration at times with with his performances. You just had to step back and admire. I thought it was flawless. If he could do that every game, you you, you know, wow. Well, c- quite. Spoiler, well, he can't. <laughs> well, actually, Michael, when he was interviewed after the game uh, by Des Kelly, I think it was, on uh, on BT, and they asked, uh, Des Kelly asked, he asked about the criticism the team had taken uh, after the Brighton game. And fair play to David Luiz, he sort of stepped forward and said the criticism of me that came up after the game. There is something very engaging about him. If he was more consistent, he could be a player that we love. Yeah, I think whenever you... You listen to anyone in football speaking about David Luiz, they are very complimentary about him as um, almost in two different ways. One is a kind of joker in the dressing room and someone who puts people in a good mood, but also his kind of uh, resilience. And I mean, he's a player who's been criticised constantly since he came to English football in what, 2011? He's okay. he had a, a time away with PSG, but he's been here a long time and been subject to roughly the same criticisms. Um, partly because he's made the same mistakes, so I don't think those criticisms are always unfair. While winning in... trophies, though, but can I? Well, just yeah, say? yeah, that is true. But I mean, in certain situations, I think he's he's very valuable to have. I mean, his performance on on Sunday reminds me of the kind of thing he was having to do for Chelsea when they won the the Champions League in, in 2012, which was stay in the box and head the ball away. I think you worry about him more when he's kind of got to got to cover space higher up the pitch when he's got to chase people when there are moments where he might slide in um i think in those situations he can be a slight liability and has been for arsenal at this time uh, at times this season but uh, yeah certainly on sunday he was i thought arsenal's best player he did he did appear to be um michael we're going to let you uh, go now um thank you very much as always uh, for joining us we appreciate it my pleasure. No, whenever it leaves away, I'm more than happy to stand in. To celebrate the return of the Premier League, we're offering listeners a 30-day free trial with The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to sign up. Enjoy all of James and Amy's articles, as well as those from our other great writers, including David Ornstein, of course, between now and the end of the season. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Thanks again to Michael Cox for joining us here on Handbrake Off. Uh, James, I didn't um, I didn't ask you about uh, Sunday. I'm assuming you were, you were as delighted as everyone else, but I guess last night, because we're recording this uh, the morning after the, the Aston Villa game, last night we, we can't get carried away, but... To see Mikel Arteta's face after the game against Manchester City was to see, you know, joy unconfined, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It was a brilliant performance and a fantastic achievement to get this team into a cup final, uh, which is now, I guess, a playoff for European football for Arsenal. You know, I mean, the, they get it or they don't. I think they had the chance to potentially push on and secure that by the Premier League, but having lost to Aston Villa, that's not going to be the case. And it loads, uh, it loads a little bit of pressure onto Arsenal in that final. But the parallels with 2017 are pretty amazing, aren't they? You know, unexpectedly beating a Man City side, playing with a back three, which we weren't necessarily anticipating a few months ago. And another final springs to mind, of course, which is Baku. Uh, and I know Amy went to Baku and, and witnessed that firsthand. She just got so back the chance. The yeah. <laughs> so the chance to exact a bit of revenge on Chelsea for that 12 months on, well, more than 12 months as it happens, uh, is very welcome indeed. Quite. And on, on that subject, Amy, I mean, you mentioned this last week about getting revenge, uh, really, for Baku. Um, 
I mean, this is a 50-50 game, is it not? They've lost Eden Hazard, but they're still, they look very good in that semi-final against Manchester United. Yeah, I think that both both teams who won their semi-finals uh, put in very, very strong performances that make you feel that if they do that again, it's going to be a real humdinger and a tough one to call um, if they can reach those standards. Uh, I agree that Eden Hazard not being there feels extremely helpful from an Arsenal point of view. <laughs> yeah. Going into that game, it didn't feel like Chelsea were sort of mega favourites, really. And Arsenal put in some excellent cup performances in the Europa, particularly in the knockout stages. Uh, a couple of really good wins away from home in Naples and uh, was it Valencia? Um, yes. Uh, and, and, and the relationship and rapport on the pitch was absolutely flying between Aubameyang and Lacazette. It looked like they were just scoring goals for fun. And Ramsey, the, the miss of Ramsey is something that, always feels like it'll be a big regret because he was felt so fundamental to that improvement and the way that, that they were playing in Europe and I think he wanted so much to go out on that high um but his uh, his injury was was a real blow um and to to not Arsenal to not have that kind of player who can score big goals in in, in big games and for Chelsea to have had that guy Ned and Hazard it, you know tilted it far too comfortably really in the end but it felt like one that I mean Arsenal had everything there is another correlation Arsenal had everything to to gain from it and in a way Chelsea had nothing to lose because they were already in the Champions League Arsenal were trying to get back in the Champions League by dint of winning that Europa League and this time Chelsea are going to be in Europe anyway um, and uh, Arsenal need to get the win to get themselves back in the Europa so there is that kind of extra edge and tension and pressure on Arsenal that they have slightly more on the line um, in terms of what they hope for to rebuild and the financial implications that will come with either being in Europe or not. So, uh, and I, I and, it, and that's why I think one of the reasons why it felt like a kind of, um, the, the, the players at the end of Baku were, looked completely demolished and I've, not winning uh, was obviously a massive thing because a lot of the players in that in the Arsenal team had not had that much experience of winning trophies, but also um, knowing that they had a chance to get in the Champions League and that they didn't do it, I think felt weighed very heavily on on particularly players like Bamiyang. I mean, we're still looking at a situation where we don't know what's coming with his contract uh, for next season. Um, Arteta. Hat's been very, very optimistic in his public announcements so far. Hopefully, he's on the right lines there. But you, players need to feel that they've got, you know, genuinely things that they can fight for that they can achieve, I think. Um, and it really hurt them to not get back in the Champions League last year. I think that winning the Cup and getting into the Europa League as a sort of minimum does make a big difference to this team. So there's a lot on the line. There does appear to be. Uh, you've both written, um, been involved in writing a piece about Raul uh, Sanlehi, um, as you call him, the man with the keys. Um, it's quite a nice pastoral start to the whole piece, walking his dogs on Hampstead Heath to get away from the pressure of recruitment. Um, uh, James, do you want to kick us off on this? I mean, we've talked quite a lot about Raul Sanlehi. I don't know the guy. I mean, I'd recognise him now because I've seen the picture of him here. Uh, but how important is he? Um, in terms of the link between the board and Mikel Arteta? I think he's incredibly important because I think he serves principally as the link really between the owners and Mikel Arteta. And he's the head of football. Um, essentially, he's kind of taken over that side of the business from Ivan Gazidis, who was the previous chief executive. Uh, and all major decisions ultimately rest with him. So... I think he's pretty important. And when we're having these conversations and Arteta's talking in post-match press conferences about transfer budgets and allocation of spending, you know, Raul will be absolutely key to those conversations, you know, with the ownership and seeing exactly what can be stretched, what can be found on the back of a sofa, what Arsenal can do to give Arteta what he needs this summer. Um, I think the other reason that he's interesting is because he's brought with him a particular recruitment style. And that's been one that's more driven by uh, contacts than necessarily by analytics or scouting. And I think in any healthy transfer situation, you want a really nice balance of those three ingredients. And Arsenal, I think, have maybe lent slightly more in one direction of late. 
Now, it hasn't had brilliant results. I mean, if you look at Arsenal's league position, there seems to be clearly we're in a period of decline. So that needs to be turned around. And I'm sure some conversations with some agents might prove fruitful and might prove beneficial. But other times you have to rely on people's eyes or the numbers, as Arsenal did with Gabriel Martinelli to kind of pluck someone from obscurity. And I think this is a really, really big transfer window for Rouse and Yehi because he had last summer, and to be honest, it's been quite difficult to assess the business of last summer, partly because of the turmoil Arsenal have been in this season. And there have been times where we thought Pepe was brilliant and other times where we've been less sure and the same of David Luiz and certain other players. Uh, this season, I think he needs to get it right. Arsenal are in... Uh, a position where they desperately need to improve. So it's going to be a very, very interesting few weeks for Raoul and, and for the club more generally. And when you said some agents, you meant one agent, right? Or did I get that Genuinely, right? no, I, I don't. I mean, I, this isn't about one agent at all. I think there are certain agents that the club has a closer relationship with uh, and they're people who Raoul historically has worked with. And it is worth saying that's not always a bad thing. You know, if you look at... We mentioned the piece, Wolves' trajectory, and they are you know, yes. very heavily influenced by one particular agent in uh, Georgia Mendes. But it's been pretty beneficial for them. I mean, they were in the championship when his influence began on the club, and now look at them. They've been pushing for European places. Um, so, you know, that's not inherently bad. It's about what benefit you can detract from it, um, extract from it rather. And Arsenal maybe not aren't doing that as efficiently as some other clubs. Amy, is this really about finding another David Dean? Uh, not necessarily, because I think that football's changed since then. I think that uh, Arsene and David Dean had a relationship both professionally and personally that was very, very unusual. Uh, they were very close, very trusted friends. They got on extremely well. They, uh, s- they spoke all the time. They trusted each other with absolutely everything. Um, their talents in terms of what they did to get players dovetailed perfectly. Uh, Arsene had his um, powers of persuasion in terms of talking to players and uh, getting them interested in making sure that Arsenal was the place for them to be. David Dean had his particular powers of persuasion to deal with the uh, agents and the financial side and getting the deals over the line. Uh, and for a while, it was uh, it was a golden ticket and it felt like almost every player that, that they went for and that they brought in was a outstanding success. I mean, you know, you can have roast-tinted spectacles and uh, for, for, for each Sol Campbell, maybe there's a Pascal Sagan for each... Um, you know, uh, Freddie Jungberg, maybe there's an Alberto Mendes. I mean, it's it, obviously you're not going to get every single one right, but I think there were so many big wins in those in that golden era where, you know, some of the prices paid for a Patrick Vieira for three and a half million quid or something just seems ridiculous. Uh, the, 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 the Getting Thierry Henry in, getting um, Robert Pires in for seven and a half million uh, getting Sol for free, getting Colo Torre for virtually nothing. Uh, I mean, that Invincibles team was built on uh, really stunning recruitment uh, with, ba- you know, barely a skip beat. I just don't think that in today's world that that can be replicated. I, Amy, I, I totally understand it. So I just want to come back at you briefly about this because, I, I mean, James, you'll understand this about the world of TV. What you need is a producer who keeps the money away from the talent, basically. The talent being Mikel Arteta, of course, in this case, and the board. There has to be someone who keeps the board at arm's length but has a decent relationship with the um, with what the manager. Right? I don't understand. What I mean is you need someone in between the board and and the, the playing staff who is going to provide a connection between uh, to both. And David Dean did that, did he not? He kept Arson protected from the machinations of the board but at the same time... No, no, not really. I wouldn't say that was quite quite the same. I mean, it was in that period, there used to be, I think, a weekly board meeting. Again, it was a very different situation. We're dealing with the modern world of Arsenal where the owner lives on a different continent. Yeah. Um, the board has been completely restructured to include himself, his son, um, 
you know, and a couple of others from the the very old guard who are who are sort of more figureheads than anything else. The, the people, the the people doing the business. Raúl is not on the board. Edu is not on the board. The, those are football executive people doing the the doing are not on the board. So whereas David Dean and and all the people on the board in those days had proper roles where somebody would oversee the youth department, somebody would oversee the commercial department. There was oversight across the board that was split up amongst the board members, and they would have a weekly board meeting, and and uh, Arsene would be there invariably. He was he was talking to them face to face all the time. So it was the opposite of saying that there was they were kept apart and there was sort of something in the middle that links them. And that's what I mean about how things have changed. So you, so it is different now. But I think it's important to have um, kind of accountability and challenges for every, you know across this food chain. So you know whether it's Arteta, whether it's Raúl and Edu, whether it's uh, the, the scouting department, whether it's the, the, the owners, they should all be talking to each other and challenging each other to do the best for the club. Okay, uh, I think we should uh, we should have a song uh, at this point before we go. Um, I mean, Amy, can I just ask you, uh, sorry, James, I will come to you, but Amy, are you just sort of against music and football or is it just Sweet Caroline that is really sort of, you know? No, it's very specific. It's, uh, I mean, I'm a... I'm a a music lover i studied music um i think music can enhance almost any situation in life but if you get it wrong then it just, <laughs> it just it, well well it, yeah. our producer tayo did say why do uh why do arsenal seem to get it wrong musically uh, so many times james do you have a view on this i actually have a bigger objection to the wonder of you yeah than i, I hate that as well to sweet caroline because that was really strange the manner in which that was sort of foisted upon the fans as if it had some kind of significance or relevance. And it was clearly an attempt to sort of create a kind of you'll never walk alone equivalent for Arsenal. Um, but it always just felt very, very weird. And it, I associated it with that early Emirates Stadium period where it didn't really feel like home. And one of the things that prevented it feeling like home was the constant presence of that song. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder if clubs need DJs, really. Uh, do you not think that is a bit of a problem in all this? I mean, uh, look, the, I mean, even even going back to the days when the crowds used to turn up an hour, hour or an hour and a half before the game and shout songs at one another, like, there was still music um, sometimes, although you would, you would find that the crowd made their own noise, mostly. Um, but... Uh, I, I don't. I mean, I think there's a. Ba I think there's a balance. Um, but now you just feel like the musical kind of choices are, are part of the spectacle, as far as the, you know, TV production or the the whole creation of this football uh, experience is concerned. Um, and I think James is right in saying that. I think there were people at Arsenal that thought we need an anthem. Um, but I, I think it's a. You can't just create something out of nothing. You can't just decide. Who decides that the Wonder of You is a good choice? I thought it sounded like something that should be played at a funeral. Um, <laughs> Maybe that frankly, is a good choice. At the, and <laughs> it, was, what, it was like... It just never felt do like... What songs Arsenal? What, uh, well, I, I mean, I think that uh, Go West had a certain connotation, um, for example. Really? But that was of, a, of, of its time. Uh, well, this is the point. It's all randomised, isn't it? At, at the time, Go West became a thing because 1-0 to the Arsenal became a thing and uh, it got absorbed into the Arsenal playlist, if you like. Um, I remember back in the 80s, uh, Arsenal used to come out to the theme from the A-team. Uh, younger listeners, you may want to look up a uh, American show from that time, which involved four fugitives. Soldiers of Fortune. To, yeah, a Soldier of Fortune. Fun. He used to go around <laughs> getting up to all sorts of capers. And, um, you Although know, one so, of them wouldn't get on a plane. Four. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. And we thought about him a lot during the Dennis Bergkamp times, didn't we? But, uh, you know, for some reason, the DJ at the time thought the A-team that'll do. And that was, you know... It would be ludicrous to play that now, probably, but of its time, it worked. And sometimes those things do work of its time. But I think it, the problem with Sweet Caroline, for me, well, there's lots of problems, but somebody somewhere decided that, it would, you know, that should be the anthem um, for, for Arsenal after the failed experiment of the Wonder of You. 
but I, do, I don't know why why does someone think that that's particularly good I mean without getting all serious for a moment there is a, a genuine point that I that I dislike about the song apart from the fact that it just it feels like nails on a chalkboard to me and that's a personal thing because people like different music and one person's champagne is another person's poison but that song in an interview not so long ago Neil Diamond said that he wrote that about uh, the daughter of uh, John F Kennedy who was aged 11 at the time if you listen to the lyrics it's not appropriate about someone of 11 years old and there is a serious point of, of which you know I don't know whether a song with those connotations should be blasted out of Arsenal matches there <laughs> well, that's that's a pretty good argument, James, for not having it. I, I guess that also rules out anything. Do you want me Gary to argue Glitter. for it now? Well. No, 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 not not in any way. Thank no, but you. these things are very, very difficult, aren't they? Because you need something sort of un- uplifting. It's interesting, isn't it? Because like a song like "Good Old Arsenal," for example, we all kind of, I guess, feel relatively affectionate about that song. But is that partly just time and nostalgia? You know, in fifty years, will people be going, "Ha ha." Sweet Caroline, how we love it at Arsenal. I don't know. <laughs> but, oh my god! Um, but it, I, it, it is. I, I think these things are better when they feel organic. That's the key, isn't it? And <clears throat> yes. it hasn't really happened that we have an anthemic song at Arsenal, and that's okay. I think. I think allow it to happen naturally rather than sort of you know pushing it on us. Quite. Quite. Let's have a song. Do we have a song for this week? Does anyone have a song for this week, Amy? Yeah, I'm going to choose an, a song that Arsenal used to come out to that I thought was perfectly fine until people started mucking about with it, which is Curtis Mayfield, Move On Up, because you can't beat a bit of Curtis. Hush not, child, and don't cry. Your folks might understand you. Just move on up toward your destination. Though you may find from time to time. It's tough to follow that, James, isn't it? Because I think that's a fantastic song. It is, yeah. I mean, I was watching Arsenal fail to create a single shot on target against Aston Villa, <laughs> wishing for some creativity, and I went for Express Yourself by NWA. But I think on the theme of Arsenal running out to music, I've got to go. With Curtis, yeah, sure. Yeah, because Move On Up is better than a song called, say, Slipping Down the Table, isn't it, really? To be fair. Exactly, it's a message we can all get behind. <laughs> Quite, OK. Uh, thank you, uh, Amy and James. Lovely to speak to you, as always. Thank you to Michael Cox as well for joining us. And thank you to Tyo, our producer, for looking after us. This is Handbrake Off. This has been, in fact, Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast, brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. Have a good week. Thank you.